Well, today we are wrapping up our third and final week of the series we started in Ephesians, chapter 6, Reframing Postmodern Parenting. And I'd like to share with you Mark Twain's philosophy when it comes to rearing children. It went something like this. Things run along pretty smoothly until your kid reaches 13. I got a one, one more year left of smoothness, I guess. And that's the time you need to stick them in a barrel, hammer the lid down nice and snug, and feed them through a knot hole. And then, about the time he turns 16, plug up the knot hole. <laughs> There's some good parenting advice for you. And some of you might say, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea if you're in that season or you've, you've been in that season, know what that's like. I'm sure there's a better way to do it. And we're going to look into that a little bit from God's Word today. But before we get into that, I want to state this. There's a, a pillar in our culture that has to be reclaimed and repaired in order for our country to see an advancement of Christianity and a thriving of Christianity instead of a tanking of it. And that pillar is the family. It's one of the reasons in our, our values as a church, it's stated there, strengthening families is one of our values that we uphold high. It's very important in our culture, and we're losing the grip on what family is. Not only in marriages, but especially when it comes to parenting, which is our topic today. We started this two weeks ago in Ephesians. And we looked at there that the primary objective for parents, for grandparents, and we've talked about even by implication those who are seeking to influence others in a discipling relationship is to help them to obey God and His commands. And the vision, a vision is a preferred picture of the future that produces passion in us. The vision of the future for our kids and future generations is that it might go well with them, that they might live long, and they might walk wisely with the Lord. That's what Ephesians says. And there's a way to go about doing it. So we've been talking about God's game plan and also practicing that game plan. But here's a question. Some of us can do a great job at trying to instill principles from God's word to help our kids, grandkids, and disciples to walk with the Lord. But then what do you do when they don't obey? What do you do? How do you get your kids to mind when you've about lost your own? Might be another way of saying it. Well, loving and firm discipline is a part of that answer. And the, my premise today is this, that loving and yet firm discipline is a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission for the child. It's a rescue mission for the parent. And it's a rescue mission for our culture. What we're talking about today is very important. A lot of hinges upon how we do at this. And yet, I would, if I were to guess, there might be some of you today as we go through what discipline looks like that might cringe a little. 
And you might think that it's archaic or as cruel as sticking your kid in a barrel and feeding him through a knot hole. And yet the question I also want to pose, if that is your view of this today, is this. Why do you think that? When it comes to discipline and some forms of it, if you kind of shirk back sometimes, why is that? Could it be that the postmodern culture has shaped our beliefs and values more than God's word shapes it? I think that's true at some time, sometimes. So let's look at, first of all, a poor discipline and its consequences. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me. And we're going to veer off the Ephesians trail just today. And we'll get back into it next week. 1 Samuel 2, 22 through 29, page 158. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, as you're turning there, the context of the story is about Eli and his sons. Eli is a priest overseeing all the activities and worship offerings of the temple, kind of like a pastor today. And the stigma of a lot of pastors, kids, PKs today is that they're the worst behaved kids in the church. And if it's Mike Clement, I'm sure that was true when he was growing up. It was true of Mike. Every every story I've heard about Mike, it's true of him. (laughs) Well, he turned out all right. (laughs) But it was definitely true for Eli. His sons were the worst behaved of many families. They were quite the hooligans. In the previous verses, it describes how God was very displeased by the way they were offering their sacrifices to the Lord and the way that they were taking meat that was supposed to be offered to God and the way they were going about doing that. And they were robbing people really of their sacrifice that was supposed to be presented to the Lord. And look at what it says in Chapter 2, verse 17, 1 Samuel says, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now if that wasn't enough, let your eyes drop down to verse 22. Where it says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they even lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting so that everyone else could see what was going on. Eli's sons were way out of line, kind of like that proverbial kid in the store throwing a temper tantrum. And the parent does nothing about it. Eli didn't do anything about it except scold them some. Let's read on as it says here in verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings. And look what it says from all the people. This must have been a huge embarrassment to Eli. Just like to the parent where their kid throws a tantrum in the store. He says, no, my sons, for it is not good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Whoa. Now that sounds pretty harsh, right? Why did the Lord want to kill them? Well, because they had no regard for the service of the Lord, for the holiness and the 
consecrated effort that needed to be taken place with their offerings, but also their pure, vile behavior before the public. God had to step in and do something because Eli didn't do anything. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. His sons died, and Eli himself died. That was part of the consequence for their sin. So now, keeping this story in mind, let's take a look at some principles from the Proverbs. And if you're taking notes, the next blank here, number one, one of the consequences of poor discipline literally can be death. And I have these verses in your notes and on the screen for right now, if you can follow along. Proverbs 23, 3, 13 through 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child if you punish them with the, and then you're going to see this word over and over again, the rod. The rod, they will not die. See, a lot of, a lot of people don't institute any kind of corporal discipline because their fear of hurting them. This verse, they're not going to die. If they do, you're doing a little too hard. (laughs) Verse 14, punish them with the what? Rod. And save them from what? Death. It's a rescue mission. Discipline in a loving, firm manner is a rescue mission. Just like we talked about in one of the illustrations You teach your kids first-time obedience, and it has importance on every single level, every single time, for when it really matters, they'll listen. Like when you're walking around in the neighborhood, and your child's about ready to walk out into traffic in front of a car, and you say, stop, and they listen to you. It's a rescue mission. Rescuing from death. It's also a rescue from a foolish life, and that's the consequence if you don't. Now, listen, I just want to say something. I know a lot of you aren't necessarily parents right now, but maybe you have in our culture today, there's more and more grandparents taking on parental responsibilities. So maybe some of you are in that situation. Maybe some of you are beyond that. One person says, I wish you would have said this 30 years ago in the first service. And uh, so my challenge to you is if you're in that stage is listen and glean things that you can pass on to other people who really need to hear this. And care enough and love enough to pass it on to them. A foolish life is another consequence. Folly, Proverbs 22, verse 15, is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Shame is another consequence. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother exactly what was happening to Eli. He was being shamed because he did not discipline his sons. It's the exact same thing that happens to the mom or dad in the, the grocery store with their kid throwing a tantrum. Now, please understand that's happened to me. So I'm not too judgmental. I feel sorry for the parents on the one hand, but on the other hand, I also say, why don't they do something? It's To my knowledge, we had to do that a couple times. I'll tell you a story later. But after that, I never did it again. Shame is a consequence not only to themselves, but to the parents and everyone who knows them. Another is 
and just as summary pain. Pain not only for the child, but also for the parent. And one of the pains that families sometimes experience, and I like how the Ezos define this, is demand-centered parenting. Is when the child or children in the home are not disciplined, so they get away with just chaos. And then on top of that, everything centers around them. The kids are even more important than their own marriage. And so they're just serving the kids, serving the kids, doing everything for the kids, nothing for themselves, and and letting them get away with everything. That is a life of exhaustion for parents. And I know it's happening to some of you. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 2 for a minute, verse 29. God enters the scene and starts talking to Samuel here. Now he says to him, or I'm sorry, Eli. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded in my dwelling place? And look at this and honor your sons more than me. To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Did you see that phrase? Honor your sons more than me. See, if we don't discipline our kids and grandkids in a, in a biblical manner, <clears throat> if they became the center of our universe, <clears throat> it's very possible they can become idols in effect. And they're risen above importance, uh, even above God. And when that happens, there's a lot of fallout. <clears throat> So with this understanding in mind, one of the questions that may be popping into your mind as it has mine is, so why aren't there more people following God's providential ways versus the postmodern ways when it comes to discipline? And I've heard things like this, and maybe you have too. Well, I might get arrested. Well, and that could be a, a viable consequence in our culture. But I want, to, I want to share something with you, though. And this, this translates in a lot of areas in, the, in our Christian life and our culture today. If we don't start experiencing some of the pains of being obedient to God now, to turn the tide of our culture, what's going to happen is we are going to be persecuted to even a greater degree in the future. Choose your pain. Do you want to experience some consequences now for obedience to God or even worse consequences later for a culture that continues to go away from God? But here's another other excuse, or I shouldn't say excuses, legitimate concerns. You know, I love them too much to spank them or it will hurt them or it will damage their self-esteem. And the list goes on. Well, in some of my reading this last week, preparing for this, I came across a study that surveyed several juvenile delinquents across the nation, and they asked them what characteristics or qualities would make you feel really loved by your parents. The top two answers, one of the top two was this, if they disciplined me. Isn't that interesting? 
And I borrowed this uh, graphic here from uh, some of Chip Ingram's materials from a sociologist study, a secular study. It's published called the Reuben Hill, Minnesota Report. And they examined the parental behaviors of several families and they kind of put the results in this form on a horizontal plane, 0 to 100, the level of discipline and control. They tried to measure that. And then a vertical plane, 0 to 100, how much love they implemented in their discipline. And then these are some of the results they came up with. They categorized one segment, permissive parents. Those parents that just allowed their kids to do anything. They're high in love, but low on discipline. No sense of security or boundaries were defined. Kind of like going to a job. Not having a job description. Not knowing what you're required to do. Not knowing how to do it. I mean, how insecure does that feel? And then being reprimanded for something you didn't realize you weren't supposed to do. And result in such cases, was a low self-image, sense of inferiority. Just the opposite of what we tell ourselves. Another quadrant was defined as neglectful parents. Those that are just concerned about their careers, their own pleasure pursuits, and let their kids do anything. I was talking to a person just this last week who had a sleepover for her granddaughter, and she invited a bunch of friends, uh, and they came over. And he was, he was relaying how shocked he was that half of the kids who came who did not know him and the parents did not know him did not call to even ask. They just sent the kids. What does that do to a kid? Well, it makes them feel like, well, if they don't care, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And that's exactly what they found. child has no little relationship with the parents and they start rebelling and then there was a quadrant they define as the authoritarian parents where there was a low level of love but high discipline kind of like the pastor who i read about described his commando type of father that had been in the military he said he disciplined us in the patriotic way he laid down the stripes and we saw stars (laughs) But then he went on to say how that he developed such a perfectionist mindset because of that. I've got to do this, this and that in order to gain acceptance from my father. And that translated itself over into his relationship with God. And then the last one they defined was authoritative parents where they had a balance of both great love and grace, but also firm discipline and control. And wouldn't you know it, the children in that Quadrant had very high self-image, good coping skills, relational skills with others, sense of self, uh, a sense of security and significance. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because that's God's way. God's providential ways work. Now, let's consider some of God's providential perspectives on discipline and turn with me to hebrews chapter 12 page 698 if you're using the pew bible while you're turning there we'll consider some of the context and background of the book of hebrews it was written in approximately 70 a.d to mainly jewish christians who were starting to rebel and pull away from christ because of persecution that they were facing 
in Rome. And most of them knew what was right and how they were to live, but they started turning back on it. And as a result, because God loved them so much, He started being a little more firm with them, with His words and actions. And here is a great passage describing the heart of God and even some methodologies of God in terms of discipline. And this applies to us as Christians, as well as us as parents to kids and grandparents to kids. And he starts off with this. It's a great reminder, verse 3 and 4. For consider him who endured such hostility for sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted yet to bloodshed and you're striving against sin. Isn't that a great reminder? Sometimes when we think it's really difficult and you may feel like, oh, I'm going to abandon God's ways. What we do today with communion is a great way to remember what Christ suffered for us. We'll never suffer as He did. And so God is saying, remember this. You're not going to get to that point. Take heart. Take courage. And then He goes on and says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. And I see in the white spaces there, sometimes they mess up. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. In other words, God doesn't mess up in his discipline. It's always perfect. It's always for the right reason. In verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now let's make some observations here in God's perspective in regards to discipline. First of all, just as a quick review, we've looked at biblical discipline is a rescue mission, a way to deter destruction. And then here we see the means. Actions and words should be included. Look at verse 5 again. My son, do not despise the chastening. That's action. Literally scourging. And that word is used in New King James in the next verse. It's drastic measures to procure obedience. But it's also with instruction. In this case, maybe a little bit strong. It says here, rebuked by him. Scolded. Sometimes God loves us so much. Sometimes we as parents, if we really love our kids and grandkids, need to scold, correct strongly, and then have some action. 
But the motive is paramount here. To express love. What does a no disciplined, permissive parent communicate? One who doesn't exercise discipline. I don't really love my child. It's as if it's someone else's child born and I have to take care of him or her. Illegitimate. Pretty strong words. So the instruction to kids, instruction to us as we, at times, if we veer off following God and experience His discipline, is to endure. And that's what verse 7 says. If you endure the chastening of God, it will bring about a great effect. And the same is true when we're bringing it to our kids or even the church context. Sometimes there's a need to bring about God's discipline to a believer who has obstinately turned their back on the Lord. And that's something we need to remember because in such times, oh, they've got to exercise grace. And there's a point where we do. And there has to be forgiveness, but there's sometimes where discipline needs to take place of some kind. But it must be done in love. And I know some of you parents and grandparents that it probably hurts you more to discipline your kids than your kids themselves. And I know what that feels like. I don't struggle with that every time, but there's times where tears come to my eyes. And it really hurts to hurt them. But I know that if if I really love them, it's not about the pain of right now for them or for me. It's about the future, where they're going to end up, where I want them to end up and where they really want to end up. And so I follow through, even though it's hard. So we need not to fear that it will hurt them, that they'll lose respect for us. It's just the opposite. Now, the goal is, again, we looked at this in Ephesians, to teach obedience and submission. The end of verse 9, especially not just submission to parents or authority, but to God overall. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Submission to authority that God places over us and to God himself especially equals life. That's what that says. It's for our benefit. Now, I want to go back to one of the words used here. Some of your translations might have punishment instead of chastening. And it's a strong word. It's physical action, a scourging. But here's the thing, and it wasn't a coincidence, I don't think, that God brought me to Isaiah 53 in my Bible reading this morning. Listen to these verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was laid upon him. You know how that relates to parenting? Is it shouldn't be about punishment. The punishment for our sins, the payment for our sins was taken by Jesus Christ himself. 
Fancy word you might have heard in one of our doctrinal classes, propitiation. God's wrath was satisfied because Jesus took the punishment, the wrath that God poured out on him for us. So in other words, when we discipline, we have all the room in the world to do it just in love, not out of punishment, because Jesus took the punishment for them. Now, this is where this is important. This note is in your or this graph is in your notes. The middle column should say at the top punishment versus loving discipline. So on the left hand, the purpose of punishment is to inflict penalty for an offense, but loving discipline to train for correction and maturity. The focus of punishment is past misdeeds. The focus of loving discipline is future correction. Attitude. Punishment is hostility and frustration on the part of the parent. You know, anger, loud words, escalating temper, veins popping out of the neck. And maybe discipline administered out of that angry spirit. Versus love and concern on the part of the parent. Punishment results in the emotion of fear and guilt, loving discipline and security. See, the the result, short-term pain and long-term gain. God wants us to become more holy. He wants our kids to become more holy. In verse 11, again, now no chastening seems to be joyful, or some of your translations might say something like, all... Discipline seems to be painful at the moment. Yeah, it does. But it goes on. Nevertheless, don't forget the future. And that's what we must remember in discipline processes, whether it's the church or with our kids. We must have a view of the future, not just the pain of today and the now. And that is a stark contrast between postmodernism and providential command. Postmodernism thinks nothing about the future. God is always thinking about the future. And I just want to encourage you with something, because as I've talked with parents, I know how difficult this is, because sometimes your kids will make you feel like the worst criminals in the world. And they will wound with their words, and you'll wonder if it's really worth it. You know, like you say, you're grounded. Oh, thank you for destroying the the premier event of my life. You know, thank you for ruining my life. Or they might even say, and I've heard things like this, I hate you. You don't love me. And then you might even hear them talking to their friends. Saying, oh, my dad, he's just the meanest person in the world. You know, I'm talking to you from a barrel right now, and he's feeding me through a knothole. You know, they'll just come up with all these, these grandiose stories and make you feel like a heathen. Don't weaken. Don't weaken. I've heard so many stories where parents have said to me, and the godly parents, where the parents come back and say, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to do that. I haven't heard those words yet. But I've sensed the spirit of them. And the other thing we have to view it as a hard knocks training. 
Paul says, enter into the Christian life, enter into this thing as we're talking about today, discipline with a view to train hard for the future prize. That's exactly what the end of verse 11 says. We're seeking peaceful fruit of righteousness, but it only comes to those who what? Been trained by it. It's not easy. So now what I'd like to do in just a few minutes here before we celebrate communion together is just outline a pattern to follow. And please understand, this is not inspired by God. This is just uh, things I've read, some things we've taught here in classes and the things from my own experience. So please take this and, you know, fit it to your own situation and your own personality of your kids. Okay, But. When that comes to that time where you need to discipline, what do you do? Well, number one, I think it's important to remember before administering any discipline, clear expectations and boundaries need to be communicated and understood. Otherwise, I told you last week when I didn't know what it meant, I'm waving around my middle finger in the air and my my mom smacks me right in the face. I didn't know what it meant. I felt angry i felt hurt because i didn't understand the boundary but once that is established and once they're accustomed to what the boundary lines or expectations are then give no warnings or just one we talked about this a couple weeks ago first time obedience is what we are seeking so that when they grow older they will turn that allegiance and that submission over to god their father the rest of their life If they still cross the line, go to a private place. And this is really important when it comes to tantrums in public. And this is a story I mentioned I was going to tell you earlier. One time, one of my kids were walking around the zoo here in Scotts Bluff. And one of them starts acting up and they didn't listen. I warned them, didn't listen. And I said, son, do you see that bathroom over there? This is your last chance. Well, that's where we're heading if you keep it up. Guess what? He tested me. <laughs> and so I followed through my word. I brought him to that bathroom. I looked in all the stalls to make sure no one was in there. I took off my flip-flop. Spanked his bottom. Never did it again to my knowledge, my recollection. At least throwing a fit like he was then. All I had to say, you want to go to the bathroom, son? (laughs) Just like that. No, 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 no bathroom. But only do it when you're in control and you go to the room. We send our kids to the room. You can send them wherever you want, but I encourage maybe just a consistent place. Wait for us there. Gives them a chance to think a little bit about what they've done or what they shouldn't have done. Or it gives us a chance to cool down if we have the anger escalated. And then you establish responsibility. And what I mean by that is what was expected of you? What did you do? What did you not do? Just like God did with Adam. The first sin. He's hiding from God in the garden. God enters the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Of course he did. Then he said, Adam... Who told you you're naked? Did he know? Of course he did. 
And then he said, did you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat of? God already knew. Why was he asking all the questions? Because he wanted Adam to come to grips with the reality of his sin and take responsibility for it. And that's what we need to do with our kids as well and grandkids. They need to understand how they've offended you as a parent, other people if they're involved, and God. And then we ask the questions, what do we have to do now? Or what do I have to do now? Spanks. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I have to obey God too. And there's times I even say when, when I have those teary moments, I don't want to do this. But I have to obey God and I don't want you to lie in the future because it will ruin you or whatever the occasion is. And then as far as the posture, we invite them <laughs> to bend over their bed a little, remove anything that's going to hinder the sting of it. And I think it's important that they need to feel it. If there's no pain, there's no gain. <laughs> and we determine the swats ahead of time. We tell them, and we have certain things, you know, if you lie again, you're going to get this many swats. Or if you don't come clean and then we find out you're lying, this is, this is how many swats you're going to get. And we use a little paint stick or a wood and this is, this is what I know some of you are thinking, oh man, that's like sticking your kid in a barrel, feeding him through a knot hole. No, this is, did you hear what we read in the Proverbs? It's rod. I'm being gracious with a paint stick and a spoon. But the other reason I like it, and I've read about it, and I think there's something to it, is I never want my kids when I raise my hand to gesture or whatever to wince because they feel like they're going to get hit with it. And so I think the the... A neutral object, and then you can you can just really get good at the uh, little flick of the wrist, determining their age of how much flick they need to feel it. As they get older, it's a little bit harder, and it's not hard enough to leave marks. It's just to get the point across. And there's the tears. It was interesting. Uh, well, and then give some time and space. I'll give this a second. Give some time and space for them to settle down. And it was interesting with our boys when they were younger. Even when we thought one of them was strong-willed. Now we have a girl and we realize they weren't strong-willed at all. <laughs> and uh, one of them, though, was we felt was more strong-willed than the other. Uh, but immediately, both of them, right after the discipline, you know, we'd hold out our arms and they'd just run into our arms and... Just squeeze and say, Daddy, I'm so sorry. And it was just a loving exchange. And the behavior changed immediately, at least for a while. And there were some days, though, especially when they were younger, that's all we felt like. We were just, man, just discipline after discipline. And then two or three weeks of being consistent, something just snapped and they, they finally got out of it. Now, with Isabella, it's a different story. She's not in here today. I can talk about her. <laughs> we couldn't talk to her at all before. So she gets the discipline ahead of time. She, she just will, she'll throw a fit and throw a fit. And so we do the discipline. We let her settle down. Then we come back and have the talk and the questions. 
And here's the other thing. Discipline is not complete until there's compliance. There's times where we still have seen the rebellion in them and the fight in them. And we've had to immediately follow through with another round. Until there was that compliance. Until there was that hug. That prayer. And then the last thing to close the loop on the conflict. And we've worked so hard at this. And I think maybe even erred at this. But nonetheless, I'd rather err in this way. That is, immediately when they've owned it, they've asked for forgiveness from us or from their sibling or whoever they've offended. There's immediate embracing. I love you. You know that, right? And then forgetting it had ever happened as best as we can. Because that's how God treats us, right? We mess up. We go to Him. Faithful is He to forgive us of our sins if we simply confess Him. Just like that. Well, my prayer is this message has encouraged you. If your parents or grandparents has given you something maybe new you can implement and I encourage you to do it right away. Or maybe some principles as a, as a grandparent that you want to try to help your kids with or someone you're mentoring. This idea of loving discipline influences children, parents, and families in our entire culture. This is important stuff. Let's pray together and then we'll uh, ask the guys to get ready as we come to serve communion. Oh, Father, I just pray for uh, parents in this room that maybe even after today they'd go home and have some conversations and visit with one another if they're married. Things that they need to re-implement or start implementing for single parents, Lord. I thank you for the comfort and the examples of people like Paul who acted as a motherly in a motherly role and also fatherly roles that you'll give them the grace, Lord, to to implement this as a single person parenting. Pray for grandparents, for wisdom and how to encourage and help with kids and for all of us, Lord, as we seek to minister to our kids in our body. Lord, that they would walk in obedience to you and love you with all their heart, soul, and mind and love their neighbors as their self. We beg you for that, Lord. Ask We ask for the courage to say no to the postmodern ways that's constantly trying to drag us into their way of thinking and say yes to your providential, wise, and awesome ways as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.